0: Well hello, Uh, thank you Helen, and thank you to Nick and Claire for that great time of worship. Uh, My name's Darren and it's my privilege to welcome you today to our next part in our series of Old Ways, New Days, where we're looking at the life of King David through the book of One Chronicles in the Old Testament. So two weeks ago we looked at the character of a leader Last week, we looked at the character of a people, and today we are looking at the character of God. Now, I'll confess, I was really overwhelmed by the, the topic, the character of God. I felt daunted, quite frankly. Um, I thought, how, how do I even begin to describe the one who is indescribable? how do I begin to talk about the character of the one who is called the great I am? I felt completely incapable and inadequate. So, so what did I do? Well, I did what I think David would have done, who we're looking at. Um, I inquired of the Lord. I asked God, I said, Lord, how, how do you want me to approach this subject of talking about your character? because I feel completely inadequate. It's like, how do you describe the majesty and the power and the beauty of the ocean into a tiny little bottle? This can't be done. But God is so good. He's so patient, so kind, so faithful. I I felt he just said to me very gently, he said, look, just just look into my word and speak from the heart. So that's what I'm going to try and do over the next few minutes that we have uh, together. Just going to try and speak speak from the heart. Um, and you now the Bible tells us that David was a man after God's own heart so he was intimate with God he had a very deep personal relationship with God if any if any person can understand the character of God David is a great place to start so we're going to have a very quick look at what David said about some of God's attributes some of his characteristics And we can do that through the Psalms. So we're going to have a quick look at a couple of verses in a couple of Psalms that David wrote to describe the character of God. So Psalm 145, David wrote, The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all that he has made. In Psalm 11, David writes, The Lord is righteous. He loves justice. And in Psalm 8, he writes, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So David is writing about a God who is majestic, kingly, righteous, just, compassionate, rich in love. And in the book of 1 John, John writes, God is love. So God is faithful, God is our Father, God is good. In Psalm 100, it's written, For the Lord is good, and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. And God is holy, utterly holy. In the book of Samuel, it's written, There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. He is utterly dependable. And he is all-knowing. In Psalm 139, David writes, You perceive my thoughts from afar. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. You knit me together in my mother's womb. So God knows, he sees. And he created the universe. But he also knit us together in our mother's womb. Now, I felt while I was... Uh, reflecting on this I felt that there may be somebody listening today who is feeling perhaps that they don't have much worth that they're a bit of an afterthought that their life doesn't really count for much but I want I thought God wanted wanted me to, to say today very clearly that you are not an accident God knit you together in your mother's womb he spent time creating you He knows you inside out. He perceives your thoughts from afar. Any doubts, any troubles that you have, He knows, He understands, He sees, and He cares. He knit you. When you knit something, you spend time on designing it, on crafting it, putting it together. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. So just hang on to that truth today. You are fearfully and wonderfully made by God who loves you. Another attribute of God is that he's awesome and mighty. In the book of Deuteronomy, it's written, for the Lord your God is the God of gods, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. God is awesome. You know, the word awesome has kind of been watered down over the years. I mean, we use the word awesome to describe anything now, don't we? Oh, that was an awesome hamburger, or oh yeah, that's an awesome uh, an awesome film or whatever. But in the old days, the word awesome was reserved for really significant things which were full of awe, things that were worthy of being called awesome. Now, awesome God uh, is a song that, that we sometimes sing in church, our God is an awesome God, the song written by Rich Mullins. What we don't often hear is, The accompanying text, the other lyrics for that song, for our God is an awesome God, the opening lines of that song kind of describe God very powerfully. When he rolls up his sleeves, he ain't just putting on the ritz, our God is an awesome God. There is thunder in his footsteps and lightning in his fists, our God is an awesome God. I wonder, with the kind of the busyness of modern life, have we lost a sense of the reverence of God's awesomeness? easy to do, easy to to forget how awesome and powerful God is. After all, God is the one who spoke, let there be light and there was light, spoke creation into being. And it's important we don't lose sense of that God who loves us is also truly awesome and powerful. And we're going to look at a um, a story following up uh, the passages in 1 Chronicles now, where complacency... And almost to an extent, losing that that sense of God's power and reverence had some very tragic consequences. We're going to look at a story um, in the book of 1 Chronicles, chapter 13, and it's to do with the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, um, what was that? That was essentially the throne of God on earth. It was what the Israelites, it was where the Israelites housed the holiest, um, it was the, the holiest thing in their culture. Essentially, so what it was, it was a, a box, a chest made of acacia wood overlaid with gold. It had a gold ring on each corner through which were placed two poles of wood, also overlaid in gold. Now, this chest had a lid made of gold with two angels, two cherubims on the top facing each other. This lid was called the mercy seat. Now inside the chest were kept the two tablets of stone upon which were inscribed the 10 commandments that God gave to Moses. It also held the staff of Aaron and a pot of manna. And in between the two cherubs, the two angels, this is where God would descend and speak. And significantly, it is where the high priest once a year would enter in and place a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice, to atone for the sins of the people. A very powerful foreshadowing of what Christ would come to do for us. Now, there were very specific rules about this ark. To cut a very long story short, only the high priest could come and approach it once a year, And only the Levites, the priests from the tribes of Israel, were permitted to carry it. And it had to be carried on the poles. It was forbidden to touch the ark. You would literally die if you touched it because of God's holiness. God being so completely holy, he cannot be contaminated by sin. The moment sin comes into the presence of God, it dies. So God very clearly clearly gave instructions to Moses that... Nobody was to come near that ark. And also it's worth noting that this ark was constructed by a guy called Bezalel, who in my mind was always kind of the greatest artist who ever lived, because the Bible tells us that the Spirit of God uh, filled him so that he would create crafts and metalwork and all types of wonderful uh, things that he built for, for the temple of the Lord. So, you know, I always think about um, antiques, you know, I'm a big fan of the Antiques Roadshow. I always think, you know, imagine if there was an artifact from the Bible that turned up on on one of these shows and it was, you know, made by Bezalel, the guy who made the Ark of the Covenant. You know, what would that be worth? You know, you you see this program, people bring their objects and and you kind of, they hear about the story in the background of it. Everyone just wants to know what's it worth? What's it worth? You know, in my imagination, I always think, oh, I'd love to see something from the Bible turn up and be authenticated. So, yeah, this was mentioned in scripture. It would be priceless. It would be absolutely beyond value. And could you imagine the cues if, if people discovered something that was, say, the Ark of the Covenant, it was it, it was discovered, like in the film The Raiders of the Lost Ark, or something. Imagine the cues and the world media that would be showering all over this, because anything that God touches is just the most wonderful, priceless gift that we, we could have. So the Ark of the Covenant then, um, to put it in context with the story in Chronicles, this Ark has been kept in, in a place called, look get the pronunciation right, kiriath Jearim. Now, it's been placed there by the Israelites following its return from the Philistines. So this Ark had been captured by the Philistines and when the Philistines had it for seven months, they found that they were getting inflicted with boils and with, uh, with tumors and with rats. So they very quickly decided to give it back to the Israelites and with an offering. The Israelites have then uh, kept it in this place, Kiriath-Jerim, and it's been there for 20 years. Now, in the meantime, David has become king and he wants to remove the Ark and take it to Jerusalem. That's his, that, that's his plan for it. So the ark has been kept in the guy's house, and the guy is called Abinadab. And we'll see what happens now when David plans to move the ark from the house of Abinadab. It's in 1 Corinthians 13, and I'm going to be reading from verses 7 to 14. They moved the ark of God from Abinadab's house on a new cart, with Uzzah and Ahio guiding it. David and all the Israelites were celebrating with all their might before God, with songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, cymbals and trumpets. When they came to the threshing floor of Kidon, Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark, because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he had put his hand on the ark. So he died there before God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah, which means outbreak against Uzzah. David was afraid of God that day and asked, how can I ever bring the ark of God to me? He did not take the ark to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house for three months, and the Lord blessed his household and everything he had. Wow, that that's a terrifying passage. I mean, if we just think of what's happened here. So the Ark of the Covenant, this holy, the most holy, the most precious thing that the Israelites have, has been kept in a house, this guy's house, Abinadab. It's been placed on a an ox, on a on a on a, on a on a new cart being pulled by an ox and the ox has stumbled, the Ark has moved. And this guy Uzzah, who was the son of abin has reached out his hand to start and steady the Ark to prevent it from falling down. And he's died as a result of that. You think, wow, that, that's a bit extreme, isn't it? That's a bit, isn't, is that an overreaction? How, how, how could this guy, be, be killed for for doing something like that, for, for, for trying to do what well, on the surface it looks like a good thing, he's tr- trying to steady the ark. What if the ark falls down? So why, why was the consequence so grave of what he had done, which, which on the surface seems to be quite a good thing, if anything, quite an innocent, an innocent act, trying to save, do something good here? Well, he was disobedient for a start, they would have known very clearly the rules that had been put in place from the time of Moses, that nobody is to touch the Ark. Uh, and it was to be carried by poles. So what was it doing on a cart? It should have been carried by poles by the Levite priests. That was the, that was the only way it would be permitted to be carried around. There was a sense of complacency. You know, if the Ark has been kept in, in someone's house for a long time, and it's your father's house, it's a bit like having the crown jewels in your in your house for for a period of time and you think okay you know it's it's you know you're supposed to revere it and on and and it's a sacred item or whatever but do you get used to that do you take it for granted oh yeah that's in my the crown jewels are in my living room and they've been there for ages and now we're going to move it out onto onto a cart over time do you lose that sense of awe and reverence and respect that you are supposed to have perhaps there was a sense of pride. It, this story is also told in, in, in the book of 1 Samuel and we hear we read that there were like 30,000 people who were present when when this ark was being moved. Was Uzzah, I mean I don't know, the, the scripture doesn't, doesn't really make it clear, but was, was there an element of pride there that he was trying to be heroic in front of all the people, trying to save the ark of God from being damaged and therefore getting praise in front of the people, in front, in front of the king, in front of David? You know, God doesn't need our help. It's important that we, we remember that. We need God. We need God's help. God is God. Whether, whether we, we get involved in what he's doing or not, he stays God. He's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, as we've been singing about. So we need him. So God doesn't need our help. And David himself, as being the organizer of this transportation of the ark, he had disobeyed God. He again knew the rule about how it should be handled, and he and he had not followed those instructions, and the consequences were tragic. Now, in in um it, in one Samuel fifteen, um, David acknowledges why this has happened, and he acknowledges that it's um, that we did not inquire of the Lord about how to do it in the prescribed way. So it's because David did not follow the instructions. Of, of the transportation, that the consequences were so, were so tragic. You know, God is love, as, 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 as we mentioned earlier, but love also means, when it's needed, discipline, correction, challenge. God is a God of order. You know, any, any parent gives their child instructions to protect them. We know from a very young age, don't go too close to fire, you're going to get burnt. That's for our protection. God has rules in place for our protection and he is utterly holy. Sin comes into contact with him and sin has to to die. So it's for our own protection that he has rules in place. But thankfully we live now in the time of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus came, Jesus came and was the ultimate sacrifice. His blood ended the need for any further blood to be shed on any altar, in any temple, he came and fulfilled the law so that we don't have to. He came and did what only he could do. And he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one gets to the Father but through him. And the fantastic news is that we have direct access to the Father that the Israelites in the time of the world didn't have. They had to go through the priest and go through the atonement of sins and the blood sacrifices on, on the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. We don't have to do any of that. We have the Spirit of God in us. We have direct access to God 24-7. Jesus' last words on earth before his ascension was, but when you receive, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Jesus promised us the gift of the Holy Spirit. He said, when I go, I will send him to you. So we have the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit in us. At Pentecost, in the book of Acts, when Peter quotes the prophet Joel from the Old Testament, He says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on you. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Are we not in the last days now? Doesn't it feel like that with everything that's going on in the world? We are certainly a lot closer to the last days now than we were when the prophet Joel wrote those words thousands of years ago we God says he will pour out his spirit not just like a little drip drip to pour it's going to be an overflowing of his holy spirit and Paul says we are to eagerly desire the gifts of the spirit the spirit doesn't come empty-handed he comes with gifts prophecy healing wisdom tongues knowledge These things are gifts of the Holy Spirit, and they are available to us through Christ Jesus. And we don't have to go through any rituals. We just have to accept Jesus and believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and we have access to, to the Holy Spirit. And be expectant, because God says he will pour out his Holy Spirit in the last days. It's not he might do it. He will do it. We just have to receive so be expectant. Don't lose your sense of awe. In the presence of God, there is real power. Miracles happen. Lives are transformed. Put him at the center of everything you do. This gives us confidence. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. In the book of Ephesians, we are sealed with the Spirit. And he is our guarantee of our inheritance to come. So this should give us confidence. This should give us boldness that we all have an amazing future because we have the Holy Spirit in us. And a final characteristic of, of God is that he is not a man that he should lie. It says in the book of Numbers, take God at his word. What he says is absolutely true and utterly dependable. So give him glory. Come before him, worship him, give him praise. And just see what amazing things will do when the Spirit comes upon you. He is is good. He is faithful. And he is to be glorified. For he is love.